like if you're thinking, oh man, I forgot it. Don't worry, it's going to be on the screen behind me. And some of you might be used to this in terms of just your own growing up. But I'd like us just to kind of to say together the Lord's Prayer as we dive into the message. So here we go. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Have a seat. Now, I want you to imagine, just for a moment, how strange the idea of Christian worship must be for those who have never experienced it. Now, I'm curious, and I do think it's probable that within the three services that we've had this morning and all the people who've come in here and out of here, that there's probably been a handful of people who, like, this truly was their first time walking into a church, that their friend had invited them, maybe a family member, and they finally decide to show up. And if that's where you're at, then I totally recognize everything around you in terms of what we do probably feels very foreign to you at the moment. The vast majority of you, however, probably have had enough worship experience in church, at least somewhere, even if it, has, even if it was radically different than what we do here at the Living Stones Church, that you kind of you get used to it. And, and, and after a while, it's really not all that unfamiliar. In fact, it could seem fairly normal, and you forget what it probably would feel like for someone to experience it for the first time, and truly, how kind of strange it is. I mean... How many other public experiences are you aware of where people gather together, even people that you probably don't even know personally, and then they just break out in song together? Like, how many public avenues do you find that in? Like, it, it doesn't happen. Like, none of us go to the grocery store, and we're in aisle number five, and while we're in aisle number five, somebody in that aisle announces, okay, everyone, we're going to sing together. Everybody, here we go. You're like, nope, <laughs> no, I am not. Like, you wouldn't go to a movie theater, like, all right, I can't wait to see this film. They've just shown the trailers, and before the feature film begins, somebody gets out of their seat, walks up to the very front, and says, if you would, let's all stand together. We're going to sing. You'd be like, nope, I got my popcorn, I got my Coke, and I'm comfortable right here. That doesn't happen. If you were in Best Buy and people around you just started to break out in the song, you'd be like, this better be one awesome YouTube viral video of a flash mob. Otherwise, call somebody in to take these people to padded rooms. It's just, we don't do that. By way of our society, it is acceptable to sing together in public when it's the national anthem before a sporting event, right? We're okay with that. When we're at a birthday party for somebody, we're all going to happy birthday. We're okay with that. Or when we're playing Neil Diamond, Sweet Caroline, we're all okay, right? Those are the three totally acceptable times in which it's okay to just break out into song in public. Now, if you grew up in Europe and you're a big soccer fan, you might sing together all the time in the pub, in the stadium. But here, it's a little strange. Or depending on what church you grew up in or even what you might be used to, the worship around you, like, oh, oh, we're standing now, okay, we're sitting now, okay, kneeling, what do I, like, oh, look at those little kneeling benches, those are cute, or, like, what's, what are people doing, like, what's the sign, like, how, is it, what direction does that go, and then somebody, oh, and also with your spirit, and then somebody gets up and says, now let's all greet one another with a sign of peace, and you're like, peace, peace, or, I mean, what does that even mean, I don't even know what, like, chest bump, hey, like, then somebody gets up and they start talking about Jesus' blood and body and says they have symbols for it. And then you come up to these tables because they keep calling it a meal or a supper. And you're like, all right, I'm kind of hungry. And then you get up here like, 
really? Like a little thimble? That's what it looks like. Well, at least it's wine. That's not even wine. This is grape juice. Where's the wine? And then you got the bread, and we call it bread, but it's kind of like, remember like the chiclets that used to chew gum? Like it's like, kind of like a chiclet, and, and now the body of Christ is stuck in my molar, and it just feels a little awkward. And then some dude gets up, and he's talking to you for 30 minutes. You're thinking, well, why does he get the microphone? And he talks really fast. And listen, I don't say all that to make fun of what happens in worship, only to point out, if you aren't familiar with it, it's a tad bit strange. I mean, seriously, that should naturally lead us to ask the question, why do we worship? And then beyond that, why do we worship like this? So let me begin, if I could, with the why of worship for a moment. Let me just say this. I believe everyone worships. Every living person on the face of the earth worships. The question is, who or what? gets worship. Because I think in terms of theologically, I believe we were all created with an innate design and even desire to worship. And because of my faith perspective, I believe that the inclination of that innate desire and design is rightfully belongs in the worship and is only satisfied in God as our creator and sustainer. That's the question of who we worship. Now, that doesn't mean then that our desires for worship can't get bent into our life and land elsewhere. In fact, I think that's the definition of idolatry in the Bible. Anytime our desires for worship get bent away from God and gets placed on anything or anyone else, the Bible calls that, at least from a biblical perspective, idolatry. It is to ascribe ultimate worth, which is what worship is, that's the definition of it, and devotion and praise and priority to anything other than God. And you can just take a look at history, and idols have taken many different shapes and forms throughout the centuries. I mean, you could go from golden calves to statues to stick figures. Some people worship celestial beings to different animals to maybe sometimes even creation itself. Sometimes people require and want worship. There's been emperors and kings who've insisted that their people worship them as gods, even all the way down to objects like relics or household images and gods. And listen, I know in 2015, as modern-day civilized people, we kind of think, that's so primitive. I mean, who would actually worship a stick figure or a relic? But I would say, no, in 2015, even in our modern-day civilized world, our hearts being bent away from God and landing in idolatrous worship, no, it's still possible. And it might look differently. Maybe for us it's our work, or maybe it's our money, or maybe some particular relationship that we're in, or sometimes our children are the objects of our worship, or it's a hobby, maybe some possession, maybe sex, or worst of all, and probably more predominant, worship even of ourselves. And it's sort of like, uh, remember that little uh, toy you'd have for your kids where you try to teach them shapes? Remember that? Like, it's a little sphere, and cut into the sphere are different shapes, and so obviously the yellow shape can only fit in the particular corresponding shape, right? Right? That's how, like, how we were created with there's shapes in our life of worship that only the correct, which is God, fits in the right place. And we were created in that, and when our hearts and lives find God as the center and object of our worship, that is where we were intended to be. Even if at any particular momentary experience of worship, it might not feel like it, which I do concede. But I have discovered, when we talk about worship, that it only really makes sense out of two things, and both are absolutely essential to worship. One is revelation, and the second is rescue. Both are prerequisites to worship. You cannot have worship without one, revelation, and two, rescue. So when you ask, why do we worship? 
My answer is revelation and rescue. Now, let me illustrate this if I could. If one day out of nowhere, an alien just showed up and said to you, I want you to worship me, you would probably respond, if you hadn't already run for your life, with whatever. And the reason is, is because beside all the legitimate questions of even what worship would look like for this particular alien, your heart couldn't possibly be moved to ascribe worth or devotion or praise or priority to this strange alien who just showed up who you don't even know. However, if the alien proved to be the most powerful being that exists, that has ever existed or will ever exist, you might then consider worshiping him or her. And the reason why is because of Revelation. The alien has revealed himself. The alien has showed his power, his character, his nature, because you cannot worship without it. And the same is true in regards to our God. He doesn't just show up out of nowhere as a complete stranger and then demand that we worship him. That would only lead us to ask the questions of, well, why would I worship you? And to answer that requires revelation. See, when God shows up to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, it isn't as some complete strange God that Abram knows nothing about. Now, while there is still a question in terms of Abram's uh, upbringing, like the family that he grew up in, did they exclusively worship the God of Israel like that God, our God? And the answer looks like probably not. He was probably one of a number of gods, but he was at least familiar with them. But then as, God, then as Abram grew up, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God reveals himself personally to Abram, and he enters into promises and covenants. So it's not out of nowhere, like he's a complete stranger. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 says this, the Lord, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, you see what God is doing here? He's revealing himself to Abram through promises and through covenant. Because Abram's got a problem. He has no kids, which is a huge problem. And God comes and says, oh, listen, I'm about to give you great things. I'm going to, out of you, all the peoples of the earth will ultimately be blessed. When it continues on in Gen Genesis chapter 15, it's still in that context of covenant. It still begins in covenant, but it'll say in verse 12. Now, imagine being Abram here. Just imagine for a moment. Just this is verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites have not yet reached its full measure. And so they'd, he'd earlier offered a sacrifice to this God. Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and then passed through the pieces. He's talking about that sacrifice. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That's a lot of ites, right? That was impressive, wasn't it? Okay. And what you see throughout... The Bible is God revealing himself to his people. And the response of his people in that revelation is always worship. You could see who you are. 
We can see your divine power. We can see your worth, your nature, your character, a glimpse of your being, and out of it we recognize that you are worthy of praise and devotion and priority. And it's just an ongoing revelation of God to his people, to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and then to Judah, and Joseph, and then you can continue right on. And Moses, God reveals himself even at a burning bush that's not really burning up, and there God will introduce himself by his personal name, Yahweh. And then we could just keep going all the way to the person of Jesus, and what we see is a revelation of our God. That's why the writer of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. Listen to verse 3. Listen to these words. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Or this is why Paul will say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For, listen to verse 19. Listen to this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness. Could you imagine the fullness of God? Dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Or maybe you'll remember that time where Jesus is with his disciples teaching, and his disciples will say to Jesus, well, could you just show us the Father? Like, just show us the Father. And, John, and it was in John chapter 14, Jesus will say back specifically to his disciple Philip, he says, listen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What Jesus is talking about, this is the revelation of God. In fact, even at the end of the resurrection, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, he'll be hanging out with his disciples. And if you'll remember, Thomas wasn't there, so he missed the whole thing. Like, I don't know, maybe he went to the bathroom. I don't know what happened to him, but he didn't believe. And so Jesus shows up into the room, and he looks right at Thomas. He says, go ahead and investigate for yourself. Like, see the, the prints in my hand and in my feet and the wound in my side. And do you remember Thomas's response here? What does he say in return? He says, my Lord and my God. It's a revelation. Revelation is absolutely essential to worship. You must know the who that worship is directed to. And so if you know nothing about God, well, of course, worship might be a difficult thing for you because it requires revelation. With the corresponding affections of worship, which I do believe there are affections to worship, they only make sense in the context of revelation and relationship that comes out of that. Now, you know this will be true in other areas of your life. Like, let's, let's go to birthday parties for just a moment. Remember I mentioned, like, one publicly acceptable place to sing together? So let's say you're at Hacienda for lunch today. You're enjoying a meal. You're having a nice conversation. Thing, the wet burrito's delicious because you got extra cheese and sour cream on it. And so out of that back room, all of a sudden, 
all these waiters and waitresses come filing out, and they're all clapping, and it's a bunch of noise, and they got that big sombrero hat, and they got the little dessert cake in their hand. And so what's happening here? Somebody in this restaurant is having a birthday party, and it's loud, and it's obnoxious. Anyone else agree? Loud clapping by waiters? Like, it's obnoxious, isn't it? Like, if the governor and the Congress want to help us, we don't need a Freedom from Religion Act. What we need is a Freedom from Obnoxious Clapping and Singing and Restaurants Act, to which when I'm governor, it's the first thing we'll pass, I promise you. A Barrington administration is one change you could believe in. Anyhow, back to my point here. Anyhow, so they all move their way to a table with, uh, you know, complete strangers to you, but it's Stacy at that table's birthday, and they all gather around, and they want everyone in the room, let's all, it's Stacy's birthday, everybody, and they start, you know, happy, happy birthday from the, whatever, goes, yeah, I don't know how it goes, but yeah, right? Well, what are you going to respond with? You're going to respond with, at best, a half-hearted, I don't know, Stacy, yay, Stacey. birthday, or at worst, you're like, mm -mm, I got chips and ranch, I ain't clapping for nobody, because I'm, this is delicious, right? You, you don't know them, like, there, there's no relationship. But you contrast that with, let's say it's your little precious five-year-old's birthday. Your little baby's growing up. You're in your kitchen, your living room, all of your, your closest friends and family are around, and, and now all of a sudden, we're going to break out in happy birthday. Totally different, isn't it, right? Like tears streaking down, happy birthday, dude. Like, that's what happens. Like, what's the difference? Relationship. Revelation. Like we under, That's what happens in terms of worship. Like, no, no, that's our God. Like, he's revealed himself to us. And he's made to us a covenant and promises. And that's why it is that we worship. But it doesn't just rest on revelation. It also goes to rescue. We worship because of our rescue. Because it is in our rescue that we see then the heart and character and intent of God for us. He loves us. He saved us. He protects us. He is for us. And he is infinitely good. So you can reveal to, to me somebody who has infinite power, but that doesn't mean they're good. Like, that doesn't mean I want to worship that. Like, they could be evil. But you have infinite power with, based on the rescue, somebody who's infinitely good, then our hearts are all of a sudden drawn to worship. Our rescue reveals the nature and intent of our God for us, that he saved us. And what you'll see is the motivation of rescue over and over again in scriptures in our story is the reason why we worship. When Israel is called to worship God, it isn't simply because of revelation, but usually is attached to their story of rescue. Like when the Bible tells the, the nation of Israel to worship their God, it will often have attached to it as, because I am the God who rescued you from Egypt. It was with my mighty hand or my outstretched arm that rescued you. And in fact, it would be an interesting Bible study for you to just simply go through the entire Old Testament and note how many times the story of rescue is used as the motivation and incentive to worship. Like when the Jewish community once a year gets together to celebrate the Passover, what are they doing? They're telling their story of rescue. This is why we worship our God, because we were once slaves in Egypt, and our God rescued us. It's about rescue. Or if you're reading through the Psalms, like in, the, in your Old Testament, there's a book called Psalms, and there's just a bunch, about 150 songs of worship. But if you'll read them, a lot of those Psalms are direct re reactions and responses to God's rescue. So David and others will say, I am now worshiping you and writing this psalm because you rescued me from the hand of King Saul who's trying to kill me or my enemies. Or you're the God who saw me at night crying myself to sleep and you intervene and you rescued me. And born out of that is worship that our God saves because he's good. And it isn't just because he's creator or sustainer or omniscient or any of those fancy theological terms, but because he's good. And we see that most clearly in our story of Jesus on the cross and then subsequent resurrection. We've been rescued. 
In fact, that's why we enter into the week that we're about to, to remind us by virtue of calendar and story that each one of us have been rescued, not by anything that we have done, but because of God in Jesus who pulled off the greatest rescue mission in the history of the world. I've now been, I've been rescued from sin. I mean, all of it. I've been rescued from death. I've been rescued from a life that's so self-absorbed, and I've been given abundant life. I've been rescued from the hand of Satan. I've been rescued from anything that would try to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In fact, that's why I worship. And even Jesus knows this. He'll say, remember that story in Luke chapter 7 where he's eating at a Pharisee's house and a woman walks in and she makes a huge to-do. She's got pouring expensive perfume on Jesus and crying all over his feet and wiping his feet with her hair. And really, she's breaking every social protocol that belongs in the first century. And people around the table are getting indignant and they're getting offended. You remember what Jesus' response is? He tells a story. And the story is this. Let me ask you, there's a money lender who has two debts, two debtors. One owes like a million dollars, the other only owes a hundred, but he goes ahead and forgives both of them. And then Jesus asks, which one will love him more? And the obvious answer is, well, obviously the one with the greater debt, which Jesus responds, exactly. See, when we recognize the depth of our rescue, where we were and where we now are because of Jesus, it only wells up in us extravagant worship in a kind that even might be offensive to those around. And that's why I know that when a church is dead in their worship, or when we as living stoners are dead in our worship, it's a sign that we have forgotten our revelation and rescue. In fact, this is why we even get together as a church to worship. Because everything that happens in our worship is a retelling of our story and a reminder of revelation and rescue. Listen, when I get up here to preach, the best that I can, I'm not preaching just to give a weekly pep talk, to give you a little shot in the arm of encouragement. I'm attempting to reveal something about our God from His Word. I'm seeking to express His heart towards us, which is crazy in love, and by that, revelation to remind us of our rescue. Or when we stand and we sing songs together, they're not intended to provide for us just some sort of hip, relevant, warm, fuzzy feeling. They're intended by way of our song and the lyrics to recount our story, to remind us of both revelation, who God is, and what He's done in terms of rescue. When we take communion together at these tables, it isn't to satisfy our hunger, clearly, but to retell and recount our rescue. When we pray directed to God, it's not some sort of self-therapeutic demonstration, but it's a declaration of our faith born out of our revelation and rescue. Everything we do for this hour and five to ten minutes is about revelation and rescue, and this is why we call what we do worship. And if our worship is poor... It is most likely an issue of, oh, we forgot our revelation and our rescue. If the energy in this room is dead, if the affections of our heart are flatlined, if the worship team is looking out at bored and blank faces, it's a probable possibility that we have gathered and we have forgotten about revelation and rescue because worship inherently draws us in. When you truly believe something is the most worthy, that it is all-powerful, that it is good, that is your devotion, your priority, your praise, your connection. It comes to your total being. And I think you've probably you've felt that, you've seen that before. That's why when Jesus says, love the Lord your God, he doesn't say with all of your mind. As if this is just some rational, cerebral exercise we gathered for. What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. It's the whole of us. 
that is engaged in worship. Worship is not just cerebral, some rational or intellectual exercise, nor is worship simply about our feelings, but worship attempts to connect them all. And it has a look. And I think you've seen it, and my guess is you've even experienced it when the whole, our whole being touches that realm of worship. I got a video I want to show you. I think, I think it's the most beautiful illustration of that's what I think worship looks like. So take a look at this video. We'll talk about it in just a moment. The final Oprah's favorite things ever. Joy-filled frenzy starts now. Shh, they have no idea what's coming. worship looks like, I think. Like, did you see that? It's like a total abandonment. And so, like, I think, oh, it's engaging in every way. You see the response from heart, soul, mind, and strength. Affections were impacted. Feelings, a sense of being overwhelmed and thankful and grateful. And for what? A designer watch that will probably break in a couple years, go out of style, or I'll probably end up dropping it in a toilet. Like, on the flip side, like, for us, like, we've been given eternal life. Like, that begins now and lasts forever. When you see that on Oprah, which, man, I love, like, can you imagine, like, you finally made the one episode, she's like, yes, it's her favorite things. What you see in church, then, typically, it does lead to the question, are you sure you know you've been rescued? Now, the good news is, worship can take on many different forms. I'm not asking you to be anything other than how God knits you together in regards to personality and personhood, right? Like if Ron Swanson, which I know if you don't watch Parks and Recs, this might not make much sense to you, but if Ron Swanson were to come to Livingstone's church, I would expect him to worship like Ron Swanson would. But I do know this about Ron Swanson. He does get excited about certain things. Meat, woodworking projects, the absence of government, and in those moments you see passion. Or let me ask you this. You might know this person, like when your favorite sports team wins the big game. Like have you ever seen yourselves? Like anyone watch the game last night? Oh. Oh, oh, uh. Or when your favorite topic of conversation comes up, I mean, you just light up. You talk for hours, just so excited. When you lay out your calendar, what gets the most priority and attention in regards to your time? Or at the end of the month, when you reconcile that baked statement, what does it reveal in regards to priority, devotion, and passion? And these just become important indicators of what our hearts are in regards to worship. But one of the things I think is the most brilliant aspect of the Bible is its intentional lack of description in regards to worship. Like, have you ever noticed, if you read through the entire New Testament, not a single author ever tries to sit down and just tell you specifically and very descriptively what worship looks like. Not one. Not one tries to say, now let me, let me try to describe to you what is happening in terms 
of worship. It will give basic and fundamental functions, but very little in regards to actual form. For example, the Lord's Supper. How we do it today looks totally different than how they did it 2,000 years ago in a house church around a table with an entire meal and bread and wine as a centerpiece to remind us of Jesus. I mean, what we're doing is wrong. It's, it changes with time and culture. In the same way that worship in New York City should look different than worship in Beijing, China. And the same reason why, even in the first century, worship in Corinth probably looked totally different than how worship looked in Jerusalem, even though both places, places observed the Lord's Supper. Styles of music, they shift with time and culture, and you could even have your favorite. I personally love Gregorian chants in worship. They're my favorite. Now, no one else does. That's why we don't do those here. But even when I wrote this sermon on worship, I was listening to Gregorian chants. But if hip-hop is your thing, hip-hop to Jesus. And let it reflect revelation and rescue and give it to God as worship. So then why do we wake up and most of you shower and get here at 11.55? Like, well, or maybe more appropriately 12.10. But why? 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 Here's the answer, and I only have one. There's only one. Like, why do we do this today? Like, why do we all wake up at 10 this morning? There's only one answer. God. That's it. There are no other primary reasons. God, because of his revelation and rescue, deserves worship. We haven't gathered here because of you. We've not gathered here because of me. We've gathered here because of God. And I need you to hear my heart in this because I do intend something that is not supposed to be a guilt trip. It might sound like that, but I don't like guilt trips in churches suck, and they don't last even if they kind of take effect, at least initially. But ultimately, here's what I know about myself. My guess is even about you. That I'm self-centered enough, so inclined to think about myself in whatever fashion that might look like to you, so absorbed with my own sense of self and feelings and thoughts and desires, I've just come to discover it is good for me to gather together and be reminded, even if it's just for one hour, that the world and the universe doesn't revolve around me. That there are 168 hours in the week, and if you let me, I'll think about myself for pretty much 168 hours. And so it's good to give one of those 168 hours to actually center on and revolve around God. And when I think of it in those terms of 1 versus 168, that doesn't seem like a huge sacrifice when you consider revelation and rescue. Now listen to me. I totally, like, I get it. The idea of having a day where you could just sleep in and not do anything. I mean, how, do you even get those anymore? Like, when there's nothing on the schedule? Like, that's a precious luxury nowadays that we live at such breakneck speeds and our kids are involved in so much and we got that ball game and that tournament and this concert and my, really, weekends are just as busy, if not more so, than the rest of the week. And so, listen, I get it. Totally get it. And even, like, I don't, I'd be embarrassed to tell you how many Sundays I wake up and go, ah, I wish I could just sleep in. In fact, anyone ever see the show Everybody Loves Raymond? Remember when Everybody Loves Raymond was on? in season four, I wanted to get a clip. I'll just read you the dialogue. I couldn't find a good clip of it. There's an episode all about Raymond doesn't go to church ever. Like, he doesn't go to Mass with his family. So they come in, they want to, they're giving him a hard time. How come, you know, his parents, his wife, his kids, how come you don't go to church? How come you never go to church? And so here's the dialogue that ensues. Raymond, he says, all right, listen, when I go there, I should be thinking about God, right? Instead, I'm thinking about some column I'm working on or 
what's up with that guy's scalp or that lady sneezed. I'm not shaking her hand. So I'm not focused. I feel like I'm just going through the motions, and that's not respectful, right? And his wife, Deborah, responds, yeah, you're right. You, you shouldn't go if you're just going to go through the motions. And then Raymond responds, well, let me tell you something. I, I practice being a good person every day, okay? I'm a decent fellow. I do good things. I always leave a big tip. If a squirrel runs in front of the car, do I not swerve? I'm considerate of people's feelings. Remember that plumber who came over with the big eye? I treated him like a completely normal person, okay? So, so why do I have to go to church every Sunday to prove my goodness? I'm living it. To which Deborah responded, well, since you were so good during the week, maybe on Sundays we should have everybody come over here and sit around you. Raymond responded, okay, all right. Why do you go, Miss Holy Moly? Deborah responds, why do I go? Well, I go, you know, to thank God for you and the kids and to pray for the strength to get through another week with you and the kids. I go to get re-energized to be a part of something that's bigger than me and my little problems. It reminds me that I'm not the be-all and end-all, that there's something out there that's greater than me. There's something in that that that's kind of theologically right, like Deborah just preached. <laughs> we worship to say to the thing that we believe to be the most important thing in all of existence, to say to the one who has rescued us, to the one we at least say with our mouth is the most important thing, that you are our highest priority, our greatest source of praise and devotion. I come to declare that you are the center, and out of 168 hours, I can surely give you at least one. And I know that does lead us. Yeah, but why church? Like, can't you do that anywhere? Like, why do I have to drive to 718 East Dahmer Avenue and do that there? Why can't I just do that on my own? Besides, I mean, I really do. I feel closer to God when I'm out in nature and when I'm out in the woods than I ever do when I'm sitting in church. To which I'd also respond, oh, yeah, I totally get that too. I totally understand. Really. I would take the woods over that lobby any day. I'd take the woods over peeing in that urinal down the hallway any day. I'd take looking at the landscape of the forest over my ugly mug any day. So, listen, I get it. Not having to deal with people. Those people always mess up a good church. They got sinners and hypocrites and weirdos, just like us. <laughs> and let me tell you, the idea of being free to worship God when I wanted to and the way I wanted to and with what makes me happy and content and convenienced and where it's exactly like how I want it to be and the way I prefer it, not interfering with my sleeping plans or the big game on TV or the right timing to get to that beach at the right moment. It's almost like getting to worship God while everything still actually revolves around me, just the way God intended it. It's like I get to worship God while still really worshiping me. We gather as a community in church here for one reason, because God said so, period. I got nothing more brilliant. Now listen, I'm not saying there aren't advantages of worshiping together, like encouragement and being uplifted and using our gifts for the sake of God and others and the blessing of community and support, blah, blah, blah. But those are all secondary. Those aren't primary. Because those things ebb and wane. Like listen, I'm just being honest with you. Sometimes I can walk out of here on a Sunday and I mean, I'm encouraged, I'm uplifted, I've been blessed by community. And other times I can walk out of here and I'm ready to quit and drive a bread truck for the rest of my life. I can't base my worship on how I feel on any particular week because it's just too unstable and it's in the end still all about me. 
God for whatever reason, and I don't even mind asking him someday when I get a chance, doesn't seem overly emphatic when it comes to the individual and worship. He has always called people into community. He doesn't call a person, he called a people. It isn't about individual Israelites, it was about Israel. He called a nation of people, and I don't know why, like my guess might be because God himself has been perpetually and eternally in community as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Spirit, and I guess he wants that community to be reflected in his people. And this whole American notion that you can be outside of the community of God's people and still be living out genuine biblical faith is just ludicrous. Does God love you as an individual? Yes, he does. He's crazy in love with you. Does he love you even if you don't go to church? Yeah, he does. Does he intend, though, for you to be outside of his community of people? No. And while wonderfully American of you to think in such individualistic terms, the Bible never understands life and God as being about the individual. Like, just watch Jesus. When he calls his disciples, he never in the end says to them, now, just I want you all to go off on your own, find a nice peace in the woods, and just meditate on God. No, what does he do? He gathers them together in community, and he says, now you're going to be my church on mission. And Jesus isn't naive about this, and neither is Paul. Anytime two people have to get together on a regular basis, you can bet something's going to go wrong. And that's why Jesus and Paul give so much instruction about how to live in community. He'll say, no, listen, you're going to figure out how to love one another and forgive one another and bear one another's burdens and encourage one another and confess your sins to one another. And if your brother sins against you, I want you to handle it like this. See, when Jesus returns, it's not for individually saved people, but for his bride. And you as an individual are not the bride of Christ. The church collective is the bride of Christ. And if you choose to be outside of that, that'll be on you. We are the community of God's people. That's why all of the metaphors in the New Testament are all communal in nature. We are the body of Christ, the household of God, the temple of God. We're the ones who received revelation and rescue. And that's why we're here, to tell our story and to remind ourselves who God is and what he has rescued us from. And then that should lead our whole selves to worship him with our heart, soul, mind and strength, speaking back to God, you are worthy of our praise. And to say to Jesus, you are our highest delight, our greatest priority, and the center of our devotion and praise. Amen? Let's stand together.